Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. In this episode of Chunk of Change, we chat to Brendan Tanzi, Managing Director of Viking Cruises in China. Brendan's an Aussie expat who's spent his fair share of time on both sides and at the most senior levels of the client agency spectrum, including as CEO of Wonderman's UK business and of Havas Digital in China before setting sail, sorry, with Viking Cruises where he's been since 2018. You can only imagine the challenges that followed after Brendan returned home to Shanghai from a short trip to Australia early last year, only to find the entire country and industry in lockdown. Brendan's an amazing story of fearless leadership, boundless curiosity and persistence that spans all four corners of the globe. So please enjoy this chunk of change with Brendan Tanzi, CEO of Viking Cruises in China. And finally, our apologies for the background noise in Brendan's first 60 seconds. Please hang in there because it improves a lot after the first minute or so. Hey, Brendan, thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change. Hi, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Really great to see you, mate. Now, you're a a fantastic example of someone who's managed to change up your career really successfully over time. We're not going to talk about how old you are, but I am going to say when your (laughs) career started in the advertising industry back in the mid-'80s as a production manager with Ogilvy and Mather, that has to have been one of kind of the most challenging and fast-changing times that the industry's ever seen, particularly because of the advent of digital, I thought it might actually be a really interesting place to start. Take us back to those early days at Ogilvy in the mid-'80s and in particular, you know, what they taught you. I think it was interesting because in, in those days, Ogilvy had a real intern program. So you used to get rotated through all the different departments and, of course, media was in-house in those days, so you got time in media copywriting, production, everything. Um, So it was a really good basis in the industry and then you were kind of allowed to choose what you like to do. Um, So that was a great company to work for. It's quite quite an 80, uh, sort of madman's type of scene in the the 80s as well. So lots of fun, lots of parties. (laughs) Those are the days. (laughs) (laughs) But as you say about the, you know, when my, I think we're learned to appreciate changes when I first came into that job, I had two really crappy jobs. And one was cleaning the bromide machine, which wow. consisted of long, long rubber gloves, smelly chemicals and very laborious work. What is a bromide machine? Just for listeners who aren't familiar with what they were. Basically, it's like a very huge format camera that you would take prints to uh, stick down on finished artwork. In the old days when people used to stick finished artwork on a board with wax so uh, you actually take shots of, of a transparency, it would come out huge size, it would go down on a drafting board and uh, you'd stick it down with wax. That's how you made the artwork. Amazing. Ads. And then the second horrible job I had was uh, we used to look after the Woolworths business. We used to produce catalogues. And before the catalogues got shot, there was a bank of 18,000 transparencies. And my job was to look at all the product numbers in the catalogue and pull the 18,000 transparencies so the art director could decide, was he going to use that shot of socks or did he want to reshoot it? 
So, so actually, when technology came along, it didn't take my job away. It just took the crappiest parts of parts my job of the away. job away. <laughs> <laughs> did it compromise anything in those days, though? I mean, I'm sure it made a lot of things easier, but did it make anything worse, in your opinion? There were people who felt it did. I mean, in the old days when you had typographers at agencies who were real craftsmen about type, and they thought that that art of real kerning and wasn't there in the early days of Max. I think it's different now, but they felt that it didn't produce as beautifully a kerned and spaced piece of type as, as a good uh, typographer could. So some of the craftsmanship, I guess, is thought to disappear. Yeah, I think many people would agree with you on that front, mate. I, I guess, you know, one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on the show was that, you know, you've been working across brands and companies that are really on the, at the forefront of change for well over 20 years. You know, you've seen major changes in advertising, huge changes in industry that, you know, in large part are driven by technology amongst other things. How do you stay on, on top of change? And most importantly, how do, you, how do you use it for competitive advantage? You just have to get in this mindset that things are shifting all the time. Mm. That, that there's, it's not a choice to keep up with change. Things are changing all the time unless you, unless you accept that it's shifting and you just have to shift with it. It becomes work. But if you, if you accept that it's all shifting all the time and it's all new stuff to learn, I mean, life would get pretty boring if we didn't have anything new to learn. And, and that's, I think, why I kept moving companies and countries and industries to, to keep me interested. That's interesting that you say that in the first place because, you know, not only are you managing change but you're, you're managing people as well. You've gotten to work with some of the most legendary change makers recent history's ever seen, people like Andy Grove from Intel during your Intel days, for example. How would you describe the impact that change makers like Andy Grove had on your career? It had a huge impact, you know, as a young guy going to Santa Clara and hearing people like that speak because they were... They only saw good things in change. I mean, here's a guy who was one of the co-inventors of the semiconductor, so rewrote the history of, of the 20th century. Uh, so their belief that change brought more good things than bad things sort of imbued me with that optimism. And one thing I think Intel was very good at, it came from Andy, was this idea of what's job one. I mean, I think often strategy is very rarefied and very confusingly written and, and it stays in the boardroom. And when it gets spoken of outside the boardroom uh, usually causes an eye roll, right? I think Andy Grove was very good at turning it into sound bites and getting people to understand what was important and why it was important. And he, you know, back in those days in the 90s, he always brought people back to job one, which was job one was selling Pentium processors. So uh, if you came into his cubicle in Intel and presented something, he said, how, how is this going to support job one? Uh, and if you couldn't show any very, very strong causal link, you didn't get funding. You didn't get time. You were kicked out of the queue. <laughs> right, right, right. I guess beyond job one, is there a tension there in terms of trying to focus on the bigger picture that goes perhaps beyond just selling processes like here and now? Brand building, for example, is something that's much more of a long-term view. How do you reconcile that that job one-based mentality with establishing foundations for even greater long-term growth? First of all, they were good at imparting this missionary zeal about what the semiconductor was actually doing to change the world. It has changed the world. It's going to change the world further, right? And here's a guy that, although he was a technologist at heart, had a great sense about brand. So, you know, when Intel started and for probably the first 20 years of his tenure, 
it was an ingredient company. It made chips that nobody had never heard, heard of the name of the company. It was a chip inside someone else's product, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he came up with this idea of the Intel Inside program, which is I'm going to pay computer companies 50% of their media costs to put my sticker on the outside of the box and put my sound signal and the, my name at the end of their ads. And, and, you know, when you're growing a computer company, who can refuse having 50% of your advertising paid for? And it was a brilliant idea. It turned a, a nameless ingredient product into a household name. Yeah, that was an extraordinary initiative. And I'd suggest kind of the likes of which the world has never seen since. Speaking about driving long-term missions, I've been reading a few of your LinkedIn recommendations as well, Brendan. And one of the ones that really stood out to me was, was one that mentioned your philosophy of lighting the fire and clearing the path. Tell us more about that philosophy and what's behind it. I think that speaks to, touches on what we were just talking about, is get people excited about a mission, right? No, nobody wants to do a job every day that they drag their feet to and it's just, it, it's just a purely functional thing and they go home and they collect their salary. When people feel part of a bigger mission that might be achieving actually something interesting in the world or in society, they get fired up about it. They put their hearts into it. That's the first part. And the second part is your job as a leader is to clear the path, right? It, often those people get presented with obstacles because they're doing something difficult or counterintuitive and everybody wants to stop them. So your job is to ride in front of them and clear the way. And I, and I remember it happened when I was starting up digital agencies and people were helping me do it. And it started up when I, I started a social unit in Wonderman in London for the first time. And I had two great guys running it but everybody was skeptical and everybody was you know, trying to stop them. So I would just go and come into meetings with them and go, yeah, it's not an option, this is gonna happen. These guys are getting funded. You're gonna in, introduce them to Land Rover. So that notion of, of leading from the front and, and you're in the trenches with people, I think it's really important. And if they know you have their back and they're allowed to fuck up and they're allowed to fail and they're not gonna be berated for that or, or lose their jobs, then they'll have the courage to try new things. Because Lester Wonderman, what was his mission? How did he go about motivating a team that was effectively around best-in-class direct marketing and not doing that just on a local scale but doing that on a genuinely global scale as well? I'd love if we could hear more from you on that and the type of character he was and how he went about building that type of organisational culture. He was a very academic sort of guy and his mission, I think, was how could you make marketing accountable and how, as a marketer in the boardroom, could he put his hand on his heart and going, I can prove I've made a difference to your business. And I think this is where he got huge early traction with companies like American Express, who, until they met Lester, dealt with traditional advertising agencies who would come in and say, spend a lot of money in media and good things will happen. And Lester would go, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send letters to 10% of your database and we'll see who answers, right? And then whoever answers will send another offer. And so he, he developed this kind of science of marketing and message matrices and database testing and list prioritization. And he would always come back with these reports, which when you're presenting to a board and, or a CEO, which often happened in those days in advertising, he would show these guys the results he'd created. And because of what I've seen, what I want to do next is this. And so he got a lot of trust with business leaders doing, doing exactly that. Because it wasn't just savvy commercially and, and economically from a modelling point of view. 
He was also a great relationship builder as well, right? You were telling me off air earlier about going to his 90th birthday, I think, in the Rainbow Room in New York. Yeah, I mean, he was an incredible networker. And I sat there at that event with my jaw dropping because there was a video from George Bush apologising he couldn't be there but wishing him a happy night here for the mayor of New York. And it was a sort of a, a list of people. And obviously he, he sold the business to YNR at some point, but he endowed the, an African art gallery at the Met Museum. And so he was very active in society and, and particularly in New York and an interesting guy in that way. How did he go about building his networks? I mean, we do it in a very different way these days, but were there any lessons that he passed on to you that we could take on board now that you think are relevant? I mean, he always used to talk about persistence. Just keep knocking on doors. Some doors will open. He always had something valuable to say. He always had a view about the business, right? So if he was going to call someone up and go, can you give me 15 minutes of your time, he would go, here's my view of what's happening in American Express and what you should do next and how you should address your customers. And as you say, like he wasn't just a commercial guy, he was a very gifted copywriter. And if you like behavioral thinker, because he was always about how did you write something on the envelope that got someone to open it? What was the first line of the of the offer have to say to get people hooked? So that, that idea before the days of customer journeys as we know them now, he thought about that stuff. Right, it's a pretty compelling combination of commercial sensibility, a great orator and presenter of an argument, as well as someone who's very conscious about delivering value at every opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that probably made him stand out more than most at that time. So speaking of Wonderman, you went to their London office to become CEO, I believe, back in 2008. That was a, a massive change task, um, undertaking not just a rebrand from the business out of the, the preceding founders, but also in transforming the business from what in those days was a direct agency effectively into a, into a digital agency. How did you engineer that change management process, Brendan? Yeah, it was, it was a big job in the sense that there was a number of units that had to be brought together. So basically there was a separate unit that did all the forward marketing, which was a, a little bit of a standalone agency in those days. Um, and then you had the Harrison, Charlton, Wonderman heritage as well to bring together sort of more of like a direct creative hot shop. And then another entity. So there's really three entities that we were, we had to bring together. And uh, they were all sitting in corners of the room looking at each other when the process started. And, and it was the same thing of just trying to lay out a vision of what the company could be, what it could become, and getting people fired up about that, giving people reason to believe they had more to gain than lose out of that journey. And you know, then you always have to have an, an eye to not everyone wants to stay on the bus, and that's fine. So, you know, who's going to buy the ticket and, and stay on the bus for the journey? Who's sitting there waiting to pull the cord and say, when can I get off? And look, allow them to do that because that also holds you back. And that's not just from an employee point of view. That's, that's from a client perspective as well, presumably. Yeah. I mean, we, we were lucky in that process. We didn't lose uh, any of the clients. So there, there was a general merger operation to happen. But the reason they hired me was the digital transformation. Uh, you know, all our clients were asking that. And, and, you know, what astounded me about that one unit, you know, I think it was 550 people at the time, was we even had a unit in Surrey that did all the fleet marketing, but it actually also customised fleet vehicles and dispatched them to forward customers. And, and it was the depth of operation I'd never seen in an ad agency before. So it taught me many things as well. 
And so what did that process look like? I mean, you came from Australia, a much smaller operation where you were running Havas, stepped over into a, an organisation that was four or five times the size. Step us through that kind of sequence of events and, and how you went about changing that from a direct marketing agency of that size to the digital powerhouse that it is now. I mean, it was quite a long interview process. I think I interviewed with every member of the global board and the global CEO. And so I, I had a lot of time to think about what the business was and what the challenges. And I remember getting on the plane from Sydney to London to do the final sort of interview where I was going to be blessed by the, the local people. And, you know, sometimes I don't know if it's a lack of oxygen or the high altitude. Sometimes you get real clarity on planes. Um, I miss that, actually. Uh, and I, <laughs> uh, and I, I, um, I wrote, if I got this job, what would I do in my first 90 days? What were the things that, in, you know, on a, on a human level, on an organisational level, on a financial level, could I do that was really going to set a tone of change that people would sign up for in that first 90 days? And that becomes task one, doesn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. and so I went there with a, a really strong vision of what I wanted to do or what I needed to do to change that company. And that just carried me forward. And I had, I had a great creative partner who ended up becoming a, a great friend. Um, David Harris, and he embraced it. The global board embraced it, and we just set about doing it. And I think when you have that kind of zeal, that sort of light in your eye, and, and you also seem to have the international backing, it gives you a bit of momentum. If you give people permission to sit back with folded arms going, let's see how long this guy lasts, uh, they'll do it. Well, there would have been a bit of that, right, for this young Australian upstart who'd come all the way over to London to tell us how to do business better. There was plenty of that. And I remember early on, I, I met a really interesting guy called Andrew Marsden. And Andrew had been the CMO for a number of years of Britvic, but he'd trained, at, he'd trained at Unilever and run brands like HP Source and things. And, and you know, he's a real dyed-in-the-wool proper marketer and had sponsored some of the great advertising of the last century, like the Tango ads and things like that, oh, when right. the brands he looked after her. And so I met him at a, at a function and I, I invited him out to lunch. I said, look, Andrew, I think I need some help here. Would you consider being a non-exec director at Wonderman? And he said, mm, I'd have to meet the board first. And Andrew's a great reader of human beings, better than I am. And he's a Yorkshireman, so he says it like it is. You know, yeah, they, dry. You know what they say about Yorkshiremen? They, they, they call a spade a bloody shovel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so he came along, he interviewed the board and he sort of came back and looked me in the eye. Looks a little bit like Winston Churchill, by the way. Looked, right. at, me over, looked at me over his glasses and he, and he said, um, they're all pretty good. He said, you've only got one saboteur and one mental incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> Did they stay around for long? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was Wonderman UK. You then went to Havas Worldwide Digital in China to kickstart a new digital division for that business. But even more importantly, it was, I guess, the first opportunity that you had to define something distinctly as your own because you were the leader and founder of that business in partnership with Havas. How would you describe that experience? Well, the experience was funny because I was coming up for five years at Wonderman and I think I was turning 48 at the time. 
I love London. I had a great time in London. I had a great, I had a great life. And I thought the danger now is I'll be 50 soon and I'll get settled and rust will set in. And <laughs> You'd rather die of wear out than rust is the old saying. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'd started an agency earlier in my career and thought, I, I think I've got one more of those startups in me. And um, if I don't do it soon, I'll never do it. After I'd left Havista, David Jones, who now has a very interesting business, you, you mm-hmm. and Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones? Yeah, he, he was the CEO of, of Havas at the time. And he used to, we used to catch up once a year and he'd say, I've got a great job for you. And I'd go, uh, actually, I don't think that's a great job, David. Do you mind if I keep doing what I'm doing? <laughs> and one, one time he turned around and go, okay, what do you want to do? Which is always a better question. A- and I said, well, I think I've got one more startup in me. And I'm kind of fascinated by China because it's the biggest market in the world. It's going to be the biggest advertising market in the world shortly. And I know zilch. And if I'm going to ever do it, I'm going to do it now. And he said, I've got the perfect job for you. And it combines both those things. We're behind on digital in China. Why don't you go there, do your thing. It'll be a 50-50 joint venture. You do four or five years and sell out and you know, see what happens next. So I did it. I think it was the triumph of bravery over intelligence. Because, <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, because, I mean, I, I was that age. B, I landed in China, really not knowing anyone but the Havas guys, not knowing a word of Chinese beyond Ni Hao. And what city were you in? Shanghai. Got it. And having to work it out, and that was eight years ago. I have to admit that there were nights that I kind of cried myself to sleep wishing I could get out of it, but I'd invested all my money in this business <laughs> and I couldn't just get on a plane to Sydney or London and, and, and run away. I skipped some sense through school, yeah. So I had to sort of grip my teeth and get through it. But, you know, that first year was hell because I was, you know, it was literally cold calling business development. It was learning Chinese because I was living here on my own without an option to that and all the normal horrors of, of starting a business. And then by year two, I'd made some headway. I'd got, some, I'd got a team and I'd got clients on board and the business was starting to grow. I thought, I might actually be able to do this. <laughs> it might actually work. <laughs> well done. And, and I started to get some facility with Chinese. So there's got to have been a degree of intelligence in it all if that was year two. I don't know. It's, it's luck as well, right? And I, and I had great partners, to be honest. But... It all started to work and I started to love China and the actually China gets easier to live in year on year because it develop, it's developing so fast. It just, all this, I mean, when I got here, there was no Uber, there was no DD, there was only government taxis. The metro is half the size it is now. Things just didn't work. But now the development in that eight years has been astounding. So you did Havas Worldwide Digital in China for five years? Actually, it ended up being four. I sold out. Yeah, I, I hit the sort of benchmark for the earnout on year four, okay. and I thought I thought I might as well take the money and run. And why did you make that call, BT? Well, actually, Viking were my largest client, and I'd been all my life in advertising. And I think the reason I'd done the startups was I had this yearning to be a real businessman and I wanted to get my hands into what, what it was like to run a business and that was why I'd done those two startups. Um, but I'd always had something in the back of my mind. I had, I'd had clients that I admire thinking 
you guys probably learned skills that I don't have running an entire business. Uh, and, and so I'd actually originally met Tor Hagen in 2008 in London. That's the founder of Viking Cruises. He, he went to Harvard with Sir Martin Sorrell. So they were, they were both in school together. Is that a good or a bad thing? It, well, it was good for me because <laughs> <laughs> um, the Viking business at that time was largely American and he was starting up in the UK. And so he called Martin and said, listen, I need to talk to someone in the, in the UK who understands direct marketing. Do you have anyone? He said, go and speak to Brendan. I got one of those typical famous three-word emails going, Torhagen, give him 30 minutes. That was it. Yeah, if you're on Sir Martin's good side, then that's a good thing, presumably. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I got to meet Tor and I had no kind of intro. And he's a very humble guy. So he, he doesn't swagger into the room like a, an oligarch. And we met and we had to talk about my view about direct marketing and what their opportunities were in, in Britain and how I approached it and looking at the different funnels of different brands and how you could tell issues about brands with the shape of their funnel and then how you could go about designing marketing, direct marketing that would speak to that. He loved it. And we started working on the launch in the UK. It was a fascinating business and it was fascinating working again with someone who thinks at that level. But that was, that was marketing advisory, right? In the classic sense of the term. You're now running what effectively amounts to floating hotels, almost floating suburbs with, I don't know, 900 odd, almost a thousand passengers, what is it, 400 to 500 staff? That's, that's an extraordinary shift in career. It, it is. And so they were, when I moved to China, I dropped Tor and, and Jeff, his second in charge, a, a, an email to say, I'm moving to China. I'm setting up my own agency. If you ever need any help here, drop me a line. And I didn't hear anything for three years. And then I got an email going, yeah, we're going to launch in China. Do you want to do it again? And I said, Sure. You know, we started working together and I was doing the marketing advisory thing again. And then they said, if you, you know, conclude and sell your business, why don't you come work for us? And, and they, I'd always admired the business, like the way it was run and the intellect of the people involved and everything. And so I thought that'd be a great way to do, to scratch that itch of uh, doing something beyond the advertising part. So you called time on your own digital agency. You went to become managing director of your largest client's newly established cruise ship operations in China where you don't speak the language and you're dealing with huge numbers of staff. Talk us through it how you learned, oh, here's my first cruising pun of the day. Talk us through how you learned the ropes to start <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't well, resist. I mean, I, I was really focusing in the beginning where I thought I could add value, which was the marketing part, right? And, and you know, we weren't doing the cruise operations when we started. So we, the ships were all in Europe. We were sending people from China, fly crews to Europe. So, you know, my value add was, you know, I'd already worked with a brand for some years doing the marketing in China. I knew something about marketing and something about marketing in China. And here's how, you know, here's my view of how we should grow the customer base and how should we bring acquisition costs down and how. how. So I really focused on where I could have impact the business at the beginning and learning from the other professionals that were around me about the customer service piece and uh, the ship operations piece and the logistics piece. And that was a steep, steep learning curve. You know, not only are you wrapping your head around a whole different industry, but from a communications point of view, you've now got the issue of government regulation, presumably in China. 
Can you tell me the, the challenges that that also presents itself as part of the marketing mix? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very highly regulated market. It's dominated by big platforms like Tencent, who own WeChat and Baidu, which is our equivalent of Google. Um, but they're all centralised platforms. Most of the mainstream media are government-owned or government-controlled. So uh, they're all doing censorship of your advertising before you're allowed to post it. They're all doing censorship of the websites you're driving traffic to to make sure that they're not saying anything they shouldn't. Um, and they're properly qualified to receive that traffic. And all the websites have to be well, ICP registered with the government, that you, you have a registered license to use to promote that product. So for instance, if I, if I register a website about cruising in China, in that process, I've got to prove I've got a travel agent license to sell tours, and I've got waterway licenses to operate ships, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Wow. It sounds like uh, the Advertising Standards Board here in Australia on steroids. Yeah, it's, it's like nothing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I, I bet, I bet, I bet. Hey, we, um, we touched on the founder of Viking, Torsten Hagen, a little earlier, but I've, I've since also, one of our producers did some background and I've been fascinated actually by his journey. In particular, the values that he espouses, which are quite rare to come from someone of his, I guess, significance and, and influence. But his first three values, they're almost quite stoic in their nature. Be kind, be honest, and be hardworking. But then there's a fourth, which seems to manifest itself quite strongly in your own corporate culture, and that's be curious. So my question was about what's the business case for curiosity and how's that reflected in the culture of your company? It's a very highly analytical place and, and Tor started life as a nuclear physicist. <laughs> of course he did. He, he, tell, he tells a funny story about that. So he graduated in, in uh, Oslo from uh, uh, nuclear physics and there were two graduates that year and they looked at each other and said, there's only one job in this town for a nuclear physicist which one of us is going to leave? And he said, so we flipped a coin and I lost, so I had to leave. <laughs> so this was in the 1960s and, and, and he went to Harvard. And Lucky a, him. An MBA. And Lucky degree, him. Degree <laughs> but, but so this idea of the truth lies in the numbers. Uh, it's a very numerate company. It's very analytical and very numerate. The truth lies in the numbers. Look deeper into numbers. Do you really understand the cause of what's happening here? whether it's you know, a customer concern or an operational flaw or a marketing question, be curious about what's really causing it and don't take except the first answer and don't take the easy answer what you're told. Have you actually done your own homework and dug three layers deep and satisfied yourself that might be the real cause? That's interesting because some of the ways that he's kind of reinvented the industry going back to river cruising in the early days would seem to me to be well beyond the numbers, is that fair to say? Because you basically reinvented the cruising industry by downsizing ships significantly within the river cruising industry specifically. He's then gone and looked at larger scale operations in terms of sea cruising beyond that. How does Viking do things differently in that regard in order to identify opportunities and I guess leverage that curiosity for competitive advantage? Think counterintuitively. Don't take received wisdom as a thing. So. The, the company was originally founded by two river ships in Russia that were going between then Leningrad and Moscow, right? Then I think two years later, bought two, two ships on the Rhine. And when Tor looked at that 
European business. It was a business that was purely being sold to, I would say, lower middle class German grandparents, right? So at, who'd wanted to pay the minimum dollar. And he was saying, you know, what, what is the real market for this product? And he thought counterintuitively and went, how do, you know, the Americans were the biggest travel market in the world those days. Now it's China, right? But they were the biggest outbound travelers at the time by both volume and value. And he said, you know, how do Americans travel? Well, they come to Europe. They like to try European food, but they're not really that good with it. They don't have a lot of language skills necessarily, uh, but they want to cover quite a bit of ground and get a flavor of Europe and decide what they want to come back and see in depth. The best way of doing that then was the sort of Kentucky type 10 day, 10 cities bus tour, right? But if you're of a certain antiquity like me, like getting up at, at every morning at six o'clock, packing your bag every morning, moving hotels every day, spending three to four hours on the, uh, on the highway every day is not particularly attractive. And he thought, you know, I've got a moving hotel. This thing goes from Amsterdam to Basel or from v uh, Budapest to Vienna. They see 10 cities in 10 days, but I control the quality of the food. The hotel moves with them. They unpack once. And so how can I build this, these premium ships, because they certainly weren't premium ships when, when Tor came to the end, these premium ships that are like a five-star boutique hotel with great services and great food, which is a taste of home. And that become a platform for exploring Europe and I can control the, the, the experience on the ship and on the shore. And that's really the success of the product. So close down the sales operations in, in Germany, open up the sales operation in America, and just uh, meteoric growth in the American market is a better way for certain classes of traveler to see Europe. There were also other factors that he introduced, such as single language cruises and um, the fact that nobody's under 18. Can you tell us about the differences that those sorts of initiatives, quite unique initiatives made as well? Tor's very strong on having beliefs and sticking to them. And he said, you know, whenever you've got an idea, people will come in and change and want to oppose their ideas. And sometimes they're great ideas, but you've got to resist it because sometimes it's change for the sake of change and you're walking away from your principles. And our product's designed for a very specific customer. Uh, and so his view was, if you're all things to all people, it is by nature a compromise. If you try to serve all languages, you're going to compromise someone, usually the non-English speakers, in the entertainment, in the service, in the shore excursions and, and the guides and things. But if you go, I know my customer and they're on average a 55-year-old American who's university educated and, and sort of middle class, upper middle class, what do they want out of life? And how could I design a product and, and serve them to the nth degree? Because if you do that, those people will come back, okay? They understand me. They know what I want. And, and so we create these serene, Nordic-inspired environments. But part of that is serenity, is no kids. It, it's no casinos. Tor often says that we're as much by defined by what we are not as what we are. So he always says no Hawaiian shirts, no umbrella drinks, no casinos. I'm sure there's the odd umbrella or the odd uh, Hawaiian shirt on a Viking cruise somewhere in this world, BT. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you manage that from a customer experience point of view? Because English language only cruises by their very nature exclude some demographics. How do you control for that as part of the, the guest experience? 
it's not so much controlling it as you know we walk, we market in source markets where that works. So you know when we when we first came to China, Tor said, yeah, I, I will not market a product for Chinese that is worse for them than our other product is for Americans or British people or Australian people. Um, so when you come back to me and present me what it's going to be, the, the benchmark is it has to be that level of, of, of service for them. So it has to be Chinese language only. So, he, I mean, the rest of the world was always English, but he says single language now. So our, our cruises are, you know, for, for the Chinese guests, are purely Mandarin. Obviously, then the food becomes Chinese-centric with flavours of Europe and with uh, uh, European food experiences in Europe. And then we have guides which are, the whole crew is Chinese. So when you get in one of our ruse ships in Europe, they're, they're all Chinese nationals um, living and working in Europe. And, uh, they, they, you know, our view is that they know, they know what Chinese people want in a European tour. Uh, so that they, on the ship with you, they go onshore with you and conduct the tours and make sure if you don't quite understand some point that the guide, the official guide is made, they explain it to you, they get you on and off the buses and, and people love that level of care. So it'd be remiss of us again not to at least touch on the <laughs> pandemic, which I'm keen, to, I'm keen to find out more about your experience with, particularly given that you're obviously based in, in China. Walk us through, perhaps let's start at the start, walk us through those early pandemic days for you. Going back to, I guess, what is it, December or January of 2020? Yeah, well, I was actually in Sydney seeing my family. Right. It, was Chinese, it was Chinese New Year, right? So I have the habit of, of, de- of departing in Chinese New Year because it's winter here and summer in Australia, coming down and seeing my, my family. And uh, so I, I was in Australia and this news hit. I got the call from my boss who's based in Switzerland saying, and if you want to sort of weather the storm in Australia for a while, you can and you can work remotely and everything. And I said, I kind of feel bad if like, I'm the foreign boss who, as soon as things get a little tough, ducks for cover. Sitting in his home kingdom, letting everybody else get on with the work. Yeah, so I said, yeah. I think I have to go back and I have to be, I have to lead the team through whatever this ends up being. And my parents were going, don't go, don't be crazy, don't go back. And I said, no, I think it's the right thing to do. And I, I believe China will get on top of it. So I couldn't buy a mask in Sydney for love or money. And my dad gave me an old Bunnings painting mask to get on the plane with. And I was the tubes either side. I was the only foreigner on a plane full of full of Chinese people. And, and people in masks or no? Everybody in masks. Everyone in masks. Everybody in masks. And and um, as I came to to Kingford's Kingford Smith Airport, I was getting on a the Qantas flight. This uh, a Qantas hostess at the gate said, "Oh, your game." <laughs> And um, uh, so I got, I got on the flight and, and I got off at Pudong Airport deserted and everybody in hazmat suits and wow. I'm the only foreign in the airport. That was that plane of people was the only people in the airport. It's a massive airport. I thought, okay, I really might have screwed this one up. <laughs> and, <laughs> Can I get back on a plane? I mean, it was too late by then. The doors had closed. It was, it was too late. And the... <laughs> And the quarantine thing hadn't happened. So I just you know, got in a taxi and I, I went to my apartment in, in Shanghai and the office was closed. The, the government-owned landlord and he said, you won't become the office, we're closing the building and, uh, until further notice. And, and so we had a month of trying to work out what this thing was going to be. You know, at that point it was just China and not the rest of the world. 
and Tor's view was, listen, we're going to get, we're going to see you guys through this. Don't worry. It's adversity. Life is full of adversity. We're just going to face into it. Viking took a really long-term view of it, going, okay, we have to really do the work, and and we hired a, a consultant who was a, a retired vice admiral in the U.S. Defence Forces, and she'd been head of healthcare services for the U.S. Defence Forces, and uh, and a I didn't know this job existed, by the way, a computational epidemiologist. Computational epidemiologist, as opposed to just a regular epidemiologist? Yeah, and he, he, <laughs> he, he mathematically modelled what had happened on the Diamond Princess. Those guys would be busy at the moment, I'd imagine. Yeah, and he said, so here's the, here's the mathematics of community spread. And between our, guy, our team and uh, the, the Vice Admiral and this guy, we worked out a protocol of how would you stop a community spread on a cruise ship at the prevalence of America. And it involved totally re-engineering the air system. It involved uh, having UV robots that go around and sanitize every surface every 24 hours. It involved having a full PCR lab and testing every guest and every crew member every day it, uh, and isolation areas and all. And, uh, so you test on board? Yeah. Every day on board. Every every crew and, and passenger every day on board so that we know if there's any case. And it's only by doing it every day and immediately isolating can you stop community spread. So, we, you know, we have returned to operation in the West and we do have very high customer satisfaction. We tell people what it's going to be like. There's no, you know, what the restrictions are. People take comfort from the protocols because they feel safe. We, we have cases because even... You know, most of our guests are Americans, so there's high prevalence in America. We only take vaccinated guests, but as we've seen, the vaccines are not 100% effective against particularly... So vaccine passports before they get on board? Yeah, but but still people get cases, but we've had no issues because those people immediately get isolated and cared for, and we don't have any community spread. But it literally, you know, we, we put... Uh, UV filters in all the air systems. All the ships went back into dry dock and got refitted. It was a huge exercise. I can only imagine. So you mentioned you're up and operational again in the West. What about in China itself? What's the plan there? So China, we, we did a joint venture with China Merchant Group, uh, which is one of the big state-owned organisations here, and it's a bank and a shipbuilder and, and many, many things. And we transferred one of our Viking ocean liners, the Viking Sun, to that joint venture. And it, it's the first uh, China flagged luxury ship. Obviously, all our competitors are present, like Royal Caribbean and MSC and Princess and everything, but all their ships are foreign flagged, which restricts what you can do in, in Chinese waters. So uh, we transferred the ship to the joint venture. It's been renamed the Eden Hao. And what it's, does Eden uh, Hao mean? Uh, it's it's basically a phonetic translation because China Merchant Group is a company that was actually founded in the Qing dynasty. Wow. And, and it was it, its heritage is maritime based in Guangdong, maritime and import-export. And they bought a British merchant vessel called the Eden in about 1870. So they renamed this. Head nod to that. Wow. This year, yeah. So, um, and, and we've, been, we've been spending the last, well, most of this year, hiring a 100% Chinese crew for that ship and training them and refitting the ship for Chinese guests and refitting the ships for operation in in COVID times and then getting all the licenses and port warrants and everything that we need to operate on, on the China coast. 
And so can you talk about when you first expect to sail in that newly decked out ship with a new crew on board? Yeah, so our plan is to sail on October the 1st, which is national holiday. That's the the, the national day week every, every year in China when the founding of the nation in, in 1949. So everyone gets seven days off and we've got a seven-day cruise to celebrate our inaugural cruise, but also the first Chinese flag five-star ship operating off the Chinese coast. In the spirit of curiosity, are you going to be on board as well? Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, we're, you know, we're, well we're, gonna, we're, we're taking all our... Our guest ambassadors, we have some really loyal guests and some of, some of them have introduced upwards of 120 passengers to, to us in the river cruising. So I've invited them all aboard for that inaugural cruise and uh, we'll be raising a glass to the event. Well done, well done, good luck. So that will be amazing to hear how that goes. I mean, you, you spoke about the importance of mission, a unifying mission as a part of great leadership to start. What is your mission and your vision for for Viking through China? Um, and where do you hope to take the business over the, over the coming years, Brendan? So the, the idea to launch in, in China started actually with my boss. And he, he's American. He grew up in Miami, which is kind of the capital of cruising industry. And he, he married a, a lady from mainland China. Uh, and they both live in, in Switzerland. And so they're frequently traveling around Europe, seeing Chinese people lost in European airports without a single Chinese sign. And as an American, he said, you know, after World War II, when America became the biggest outbound travel market in the world, the world reorganized itself to accept American guests. The French started speaking American in hotels, started serving burgers on in room service menus. Uh, it really transformed the whole industry to serve these guests. And he said, why is it that now by both volume and value, the Chinese guest is the biggest outbound guest by, by a healthy margin. And there's so little has been done to serve that guest. And the, the, the view of many foreign companies is really just turn them up by the ankles and shake them and see how much money you can get out of them, but not serve them. And he said, why is it that, you know, if my mother came to Shanghai, she comes to this huge international airport in China and every sign is in Chinese and English. She can get a taxi at the airport. She can say where her hotel is. She'll get to the hotel. The hotel can speak to her in English. She'll get a room service menu that's in English. She can have a burger if she wants a burger. And then all the major street street signs in in Shanghai are in English and Chinese. But why, if my Chinese mother-in-law comes to Europe or comes to America, they'll find airports with a single Chinese sign and they'll go to to hotels that have no idea how to serve a Chinese guest or speak to them in their own language, have no idea what they want to eat. How could that have happened? And, and why have, you know, in the old days company in America, it was companies like American Express and Pan Am flying the flag and going, you know, if you want the American guest, you have to do X, Y, Z. But the Chinese travel com- companies, in our view, hadn't done as good a job of uh, championing their own citizens and saying, okay, now it's a Chinese guest who's the king of the hill, why? So we said, well, why don't we do something about it? Why don't we pressure some of these airlines and airports to, to do the right thing? And we effectively had the first all Mandarin hotel in Europe. And then we had six. And what about for you, BT? I mean, going back to your early days in Ogilvy, you've done, you've done Ogilvy production, you've done Havas in New York, running your business, you've run their Australian operations, you've gone to Wonderman, 
and transformed that business over a number of years. You've even started your own digital agency in China as part of a joint venture with Havas before you've even gotten client side. Any idea what's next? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, uh, it might be a, a life beyond the corporate world next where I could, I've had a lot of great mentors in, in my life who've given me courage to do a lot of these things. And I'd like to give some of that back helping businesses. And when, when I, businesses and business leaders who need some encouragement to do great things, I, when I sold out of Havas, I invested, angel funded a company in the UK called Munchfit. And Munchfit's actually run by a great Aussie guy called Angus, uh, Angus Fay. He, he was a personal trainer and he had this passion about there wasn't good enough nutrition for people who were serious about training and started this business about it's nutrition targeted to help you achieve your training goals. And I, I'd met him when I was at Wonderman and before he got into this business and he, he was coming to attempt me just to, to sell me something. And he rang me back and, and, uh, and I said, I'm, Angus, I'm sorry to tell you, I'm not, I'm not buying. Really enjoyed meeting, but I'm not buying. He said, how about you become a mentor? And I said, what does that mean? What does that look like? And he said, uh, you know, breakfast once a month, I'll pay for it. And you give me some advice. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sign up for that. And then, you know, it was one of those serendipity things where we, we kept in contact. He dropped me an email, email saying, I'm going to be in Sydney. Can we catch up over Christmas? I want to talk to you about a, a proposition. And I said, yeah, but actually I should explain that my family don't live in Sydney. They live in Mossvale. He said, you're kidding me. And he said, my parents live in Robertson. We're going to have lunch at such and, such a, pub, such and such a pub. And he told me all about the business plan. He had light in his eyes. And I said, okay, this is, this is destiny. This is what I was meant to do with my, uh, <laughs> my winnings from Harvard. So I invested in that business and I'm on the board of directors there. And I've been helping them grow that business and I'm helping them pivot it through COVID and going from a, a very retail and, and gym cafe-led business to a subscription meal business now. And how do you build all those muscles around acquisition marketing and, and data-centric marketing for that business, because that's been a real journey for them. And, and, you know, helping up businesses like that and or investing in them, that might be the, the next phase. That sounds interesting. What about the, um, I mean, do cruise ships still do the speaking circuits? You could do this if everything else doesn't work out. Yeah, it's funny, actually, um, Chor's daughter, Karina Hagen, works in the business and she knows that I'm a history nut and she said, you can be one there of our, our onboard lecturers when, when you get too old to do this. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Do you get free cruising for life, by the way, similar to what you might if you worked at Qantas? I, I probably only have to ask for it, but I, it's not specifically in the contract. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, regardless of what happens, mate, it, it's an amazing story in terms of you know, how you've navigated client and agency boundaries, local and international boundaries, both with your own name on the door as well as others. Either way, we really appreciate you taking time out to chat to us here today from Shanghai. Um, best of luck with the upcoming cruise. Thanks. And thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change. It was great to speak to you again. Thanks very much, Brendan. Thanks.